somebody working on maintenance at the station found all this stuff in the roof. Cowboys, you know, who got a bit jealous when they saw the underworld driving fancy schmancy cars and they wanted some of that. Yes. And a, a, a substantial amount of cocaine was found in the toilet. Dear, oh dear. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, I'm delighted to invite prominent Melbourne criminal lawyer Michael Kazilny to the podcast. Michael has an interesting background to discuss an issue that we're going to talk about today. The issue is the growing one of family violence, uh, formerly known as domestic violence. We're also going to talk about other forms of crime that have flourished during the long year of COVID. One of the reasons that it's interesting to talk to Michael is that not only is he a seasoned criminal lawyer, but before he became a lawyer, he was a police officer. And so he brings to this subject expertise gained in two very different arenas. Welcome, Michael, and thanks for making time to talk to Life and Crimes. Thank you very much, Andrew, for having me. Now, the year of COVID. You've been a lawyer for a long time, but it's safe to say you've never been a criminal lawyer or a policeman during a year of a pandemic, because we haven't had one like this around the world in 100 years. What has it been like in your business to see the rise and fall of certain sorts of crime? Andrew, that's a good question. You know, I've been around this crazy criminal justice system just for over 30 years now, the first um, 10 years as a cop and then a, uh, a criminal defence lawyer. Over the last eight months, yep. Andrew, I've seen a real spike in, um, you could say, good people who make mistakes, but the type of people who've never previously uh, been in trouble, never been charged, the type of person who had a successful business, maybe worth millions, who has then gone broke because of um, uh, restrictions and other factors due to the restrictions. And, and a lot of these people haven't been able to cope. Yeah. In calling out to their mates and saying, hey, I need help. And as a result, a lot of these people have been going home and drinking a lot, some have been back on the cocaine, and then all of a sudden crime happens. And, um, and it's a real shame because um, many are just too afraid to say, I need help. And that's what it is. It's the pressure the isolation and the heightened emotion that comes from the breakdown of everything under the COVID restrictions. I suppose businesses fall off a cliff and these people who have been self-sufficient for many years are suddenly staring at big uh, debt mountains and increasing pressures and so they seek solace in the bottle or in other drugs. Yeah, that's exactly right, Andrew. You know, I really believe that isolation is the enemy to mental health and I think over the last um, few months we've all been um, you know going through something whether it's heightened anxiety fear uncertainty but but certainly a lot of people are attached to the stuff to the titles to the money and then there's that other group who who can go bankrupt and they can get divorced and you know get back up on their feet again but uh, you know there's been a whole class of people who have purported to say everything's going great but uh, then at home they They've really hit rock bottom, and one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden they're at uh, Port Phillip Prison in custody, uh, and Victoria Police has refused to give them bail. Now, Michael, we don't reveal names here. It wouldn't be ethical, and neither you nor I would do it. But could you give us an example 
without using a name of someone that you know of, you may or may not represent them, who has suffered like this. One example of many. Yeah, director of a big building company, uh, living in the uh, lavish lifestyle house um, with, you know, hundreds of staff. Uh, never been in trouble with the police before. In fact, um, you know, highest respect for the police. And all of a sudden, due to the um, what we've seen in the last few months, um, the business has gone downhill. And all of a sudden, um, they're at home drinking. Um, they're being charged for domestic violence, where the wife just rang up and wanted some help for um, some mental health for the husband, but then police, of course, turn up, and um, and that's another topic in itself. As you know, Andrew, they start arresting people, even if the victim doesn't want them to be charged, and then, of course, they go back to the police station, get processed, get bailed, but then they go back home, and, and the coppers come again. They're a bit harsher this time, you know, a uh, bit of an um, altercation. They subdue them. And all of a sudden, you've got assault police, you could resist arrest. Uh, he hasn't been respectful to the police because he was drunk. And all of a sudden, there's a case of domestic violence and a whole bunch of other things. And they make a strong sentencing submission to the magistrate. We cannot trust this man. He's a danger to the community. Well, that's a, a big fall, isn't it, for someone who goes from running a, running a business successful, in business successful uh, husband and father and provider and within a matter of six months, they're behind bars, their reputation trashed, along with their their um, income, basically. Yeah, that's right. And we've seen this in, in, in you know, in, in Wall Street years ago when people lost all their money and jumped off balconies. And um, they might be very successful one way, but um, that uh, spiritual resilience isn't there. So we've seen this spike in the good people who... Um, have never previously been in strife of the law, getting locked up, and then um, and and magistrates understand. They certainly take the, those sort of um, you know COVID and the restrictions into account. But I think I think crime in general, Andrew, um, around Australia has decreased. Speaking to a few uh, copper mates in the context, I'd say in the in the industry, and, and many said that if they could leave the curfew forever, it would help reducing crime. But I think the the coppers were happy when. Um, when everybody had to be home at 8pm. If you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about your background, when you joined up and what the job was like and, and so on? Yeah, Andrew, so, so I, ca- I came as a, um, a young fella from, from Hamburg in Germany. I was born in Germany and raised there. Came here when I was 15. Did you? And um, couldn't, couldn't speak English, so I went to Mount Eliza High School, wanted to always get into law, but my marks just weren't good enough. So I ended up... Um, getting my license, and then I ended up at Frankston Court a couple of times for, there were no P-plates, I think I lost my license there, careless driving. Yeah. And then I joined the police force, they advertised in those days, um, yeah. in the age, and, and it was only 12 weeks at Glen Waverley, and then I graduated uh, squad 14 of 86, and ended up staying for 10 years. Really? Uh, so, you've come to this country not speaking English, literally? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I couldn't speak English and um, had to learn fast. And you know, I used to get into a few blues at school. I, I remember kids doing the Heil Hitler sign. I thought, what's that all about? They don't talk, tend to talk about that in Germany. But um, yeah, you're born and raised in Germany. Mum and dad are Ukrainian. So we ended up in um, Mount Eliza, ended up joining the police force and, and worked essentially, Andrew, in, in, in the Frankston area for many and many years and then transferred to St Kilda to get some, um, you know, some better experience. And that's when the crazy 
night shift barbecues. Um, um, yes. Tell us about the night shift barbecues. I do have some understanding, but some of our listeners might be interested to hear an insider's take on the night shift barbecue. Look, and, and, you know, and I talk about this sometimes to close friends, Andrew, and I said yeah. I was a young fellow who used to go to the gym lifestyle in Frankston and uh, I'd, I'd live with mum and dad and then um, I'm at St Kilda and um, 10 people would work night shift, but yeah. uh, towards the end of the night shift, um, the, the sergeant would get you to go, as you know, to all the pubs and, um, yep. and you know, they'd fill up the back with a divvy van of a few slabs and um, 30 UDL cans and a bit of wine. And, and you know, quite often we'd go down to Katani Gardens there and um, yeah. you'd get there sort of, uh, you'd finish at 11, um, you know, might get there at 11.30 and, you know, the, the drink would go down and then everybody would jump in their cars and drive home. And that's, that's what it was like in those days. So, um guilty of you know many many uh, times of possible drink driving back to frankston and and wanting to leave those uh, barbecues andrew you know i remember one morning um early openers there was another <laughs> another crazy time uh, uh the sergeant st kilda said mick anyone who uh is the first one to leave has got to wear a skirt um for, for tomorrow and he said i'm not bullshitting either so so i was you know i was drinking beer and and um and i, and I stayed at the police station but um I thought it was a rather sleazy way of sort of um, bonding. And, and one last thing I remember about that night shift barbecues, um, that, that place there in St Kilda, I think the, the Dick, Dick Tavern or something. Yeah. Um, the sergeant sent me there as a young constable and um, I went to the bottle shop. I said, g'day, uh, Mick from St Kilda Police. Can I have, um, you know, 10 slabs, uh, a, bit of, a few wines and this sort of stuff? And he, and he said, um, we don't do this here, the free thing. I said, oh, that's okay. So I paid, yeah. went back to the sergeant and... Um, and then a half an hour later, 20 blokes went through the pub and um, closed them down for <laughs> underage um, patrons and all other sort of stuff. So, so you wouldn't mess with the St Kilda Police Force in those days. As they called them. Yeah. The St Kilda Police Force was the name, wasn't it? Indeed. Uh, very interesting place. And you would have seen some interesting people go through around the inner suburbs and perhaps go from there to the, some of the crime squads. Would that be right? Yeah, that's well. That's right. The, I mean, there was a there was a lot of good blokes in the job, Andrew. But as as you know, in that era, there was also a lot of cowboys. You know, there was a a fine line between police officer or criminal. You know, and we saw that, of course, with the uh, uh, a lot of the operators at Secure were good operators because you'd get you know anywhere from ten to forty jobs a shift, and um, as a result of that, everyone became a very good operator. Uh, a lot a lot went on to detectives, armed robbery squad. Um, drug squad, and and of course, um, and we saw what happened to the drug squad um, back then. You know, several members were charged with uh, criminal offences and ended up behind bars. They did. And what? How long did you stay? And what actually prompted you to leave? I take it you always had the that hunger for knowledge. Anyone who could master English so rapidly, presumably, was very keen to learn it and advance themselves. What actually prompted you to make the jump? Yeah, that's very, very kind of what you said, Andrew. Um, you, you know what it was, um, in, and I'm not saying they're, they're violent, but in those days, if anyone who had an attitude problem would get a flogging, you know, you'd, they'd go in there yeah. and, and um, you know, if you didn't show the required amount of respect, yeah, you'd get a good flogging. And, uh, of course, in those days, yeah. they had no independent uh, corruption bodies, so the sergeant would come and... Um, uh, how have you been treated by the police today? And, and you know, if you didn't say yes, you get another flogging from the sergeant. So everybody just yeah. said yes, we're okay. 
But um, yeah, look, yeah. I, you know, I always thought that I wanted to help people, and yeah, I just didn't uh, enjoy the um, the corruption, of course. Uh, I didn't enjoy no. the violence, and and at the end, I just didn't like working amongst groups because um, you know you might get a bloke who's a couple of squads senior to you, and uh, and all of a sudden you're a puppet on a string. But you know, also, yeah. and we all saw this um, on the news, sort of ten years ago, the ceiling at St Kilda Andrew that was filled with um, oh, uh, weapons, yes. drugs, Gun. and um, uh, mm. little gifts that were brought along if um, yeah if they didn't yeah. like you. Yes, I'm with you. Um, that was very intriguing. The, somebody working on maintenance at the station found all this stuff in the roof, and that included, I think, guns. It included probably little bags of drugs of various sorts and other uh, bits and pieces that um, various people had picked up around the traps. And I think maybe some of that stuff, it is alleged, uh, could be used as what they used to call throwaways, which is if they wanted to embellish uh, a case against somebody that, that was arrested, perhaps they could find a little bag of illicit drugs or a gun or something or a knife or something like that in their possession. Is that a, a fair summary of that find in the roof? Yeah, that's right. They, whatever they called them or, or gifts. And um, I don't know whether it was lazy coppers not wanting to do the paperwork or or, or having some evidence up there to to perhaps set people up, but um, there, there there was a uh, a case I heard about at St Kilda while I was working there, where a certain sergeant uh, had split up with his wife. Yeah. The wife had then had a, a relationship with a certain surgeon, and an early morning raid was conducted with a uh, search warrant that was already rubber stamped from a magistrate. Right. And, um, and a, a, a substantial amount of cocaine was found in the toilet. Dear, oh dear. Anyway, that matter apparently went to court and a, a jail term for the doctor was um, imposed. What happened? He, did, he go to, did he go to jail? Yeah, I think he went to jail. That yeah. is one of the better stories to... I've ever heard, Michael. You know, in those days, like I said before you, Andrew, and you, and you know this uh, better than anyone, having sort of uh, dealt with this, um, this element of crime for so many Years, but uh, there was the good blokes, but there was a whole bunch of um, cowboys, you know, who got a bit jealous when they saw the underworld driving fancy schmancy cars, and they wanted some of that. Yes, and of course, um, nothing was really regulated, so that's where the drinking culture came from. You know, a lot of coppers um, were doing lines of cocaine on night shift, and uh, you know, and yeah, yeah, things were different back then. Things were different back then, you know. They were. You're talking the. You're talking the, eighty eighty six. I think you joined. Yeah, eighty six. Yeah, that's right. It was um eighty six through to the early nineties. Yeah, and I think the higher you went in um, independence, like the the TOG, Traffic Management Unit, they call it these days, they were pretty um, fair operators. They followed the rules, but um, yeah. you know, then you got your plain clothes units or you got the St Kilda Police Force. I think St Kilda was always um, a police force in itself because they were dealing with um, a lot of uh, druggies, a lot of um, prostitutes, which the other uh, stations didn't deal with. Yes. And, of course, they got a lot of the information from the uh, call girls there in uh, in Grey Street and Vale Street. Yeah, that was like an episode of like something out of America, like, you know, New York in its heyday or something, all that, that street life. 
Oh, look, it was like it was like a story you never knew. And I, th- I think as a young bloke, that's you know that's what attracted me to the police force initially, Andrew. The, you know, different jobs. You might go from. Um, you know, a brawl at the um, Prince of Wales to, you know, doing a drug raid. They were funny days. They were. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you decided ultimately to leave the force and and study law, I I imagine. That's how you did it. Study law somewhere or somehow and join a firm and take on the law, which you did. Is that the short story? Yeah, that, that's right, Andrew. And, um, you know, once upon a time, I, you know, I, I mean, Andrew Fraser, I've seen his career, but once upon a time when, um, you know, when he got off the, uh, yeah, you know, the Wall Street bombers yep. and, and, of course, I worked that night shift and uh, it was the Paran unit that got called out when those two young constables got gunned down, you know. And I, I used to hate lawyers. I used to think they're smiling assassins yeah. and, and use technicalities to get people off. Yeah. But then having sort of, looked at the whole scene and, and I just wanted to make sure people get a fair go yeah. that justice is done. Yeah, you good. Know? And that motivated you to to take that step. Now, one of the reasons I was, I was keen to talk to you for all sorts of reasons, not, not the least of which you've got interesting stories to tell and you just told us some of them, but uh, here's a serious thing. There's been a story published recently and I, I've, I'm not – criticising it at all. I think it's probably a pretty strong, pretty good story. It was published by an ABC journalist um, in their online arena. It's a print story. And it suggests fairly intriguingly that police in Australia, in various degrees, depending which state, are A, guilty of uh, domestic violence at a reasonably high rate, but B, are not charged According to this story, allegedly, they are not charged at the same rate as members of the public. In other words, the thesis behind the story is that coppers, you know, belt their partners and get away with it because other coppers don't charge them. That's the thesis of the story. I'm intrigued about whether somebody like you thinks that that passes the pub test or not. There's a couple of things I want to ask about that, and I want to get your reaction to it first. Yeah, Andrew, I haven't actually read that story, but uh, it sounds right. You know, a gut feeling, haven't read the report, but it sounds right because um, I, I remember that there was a lot of domestic violence and a lot of um, divorces and separations amongst police members and uh, back then and even now. It's a stressful job, night shift, you know. Some uh, coppers have affairs because they're, you know, they're working with the same partner. They might be having a few problems at home, but it's just one of those jobs where the divorce rate's high. And I remember one time I was sitting in a uh, um, interview room on night shift in St Kilda, Andrew, and uh, out of seventeen people there, I think only one person was still together with their partner. You know, my God. Um, and you'd hear the stories. Oh, my missus did this and that. Went a bit of a blue, and and you know, I remember sort of people punching holes in the wall, and um, and I dare say they. Um, it, it has changed a bit, but you know, coppers still look after coppers. You know, I remember when I was um, uh, a young bloke, and I might have had a few 
drinks um, might have been just over 0.05 and you'd flash your Freddy, uh, no drama, keep on driving. But, you know, when it comes to domestic violence, I think phone calls are made and, you know, maybe not the same action that, um, that other people would go through. It's an intriguing thing. Now, this, I'll just sketch in what this journal said and then we'll look at it. It says that rough figures for the population at large, that is everybody, is that it's a, there's about 37 domestic violence offenders per 10,000 citizens. Yet in um, New South Wales with 17,000 police, which is you know a lot more than 10,000, only 11 of those officers were charged last year with domestic violence um, offences, which would suggest that they get charged at a far lesser rate than the average citizen. Uh, intriguingly, rather more Victoria police last year were charged. Uh, there are fewer police in Victoria than in New South Wales, but the number charged was um, more like, I think, 23 out of 16,000 rather than 11 out of 17,000. So in Victoria, police were charged at a far higher rate than New South Wales. Intriguingly, Michael, no police were charged in Western Australia, which would suggest to me that perhaps not so much that Western Australian police don't have any problems in this area, but they don't charge each other with the crimes. What, what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. It, um, it, it, it's definitely a case where we don't see many current police members in the courts, Andrew. And I think, number one, they don't want the embarrassment to uh, have current serving members in, in front of court. It's the media. Yep. And so uh, they, they do anything possible to exercise their discretion, you know, maybe give the victim some, um, some counselling stuff. I don't think they would just wipe it under the carpet, but do something legally to make sure it doesn't hit the um, uh, criminal law stream. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I was saying to a mate the other day, I've, I've spoken to many AFL footy players over the years, and uh, for some reason um, their cases uh, rarely end up in court. You know, I don't know what happens to them, but somehow they disappear <laughs> along the way. Oh, they yes. They disappear along the, the way. The better the player, yeah. they do. The, 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 the ordinary players, you know, the, the reserves player who's going nowhere. Yeah. Apparently, when they get into trouble, sometimes they do hit a hurdle. <laughs> and uh, the, the, abs the absolute stars, it's amazing um, how they seem to get around it. Yeah. Well, that's right, Andrew. And I, I think also that once you're a, a current serving member, you, you get looked after by the brotherhood, which I think will always exist. But once you're an ex-member, you, we, we see a lot of ex-members in trouble, ex-football players in trouble, you know. But once I think you're still part of the group, um, you know, they, they orchestrate something to ensure that um, things are sorted out. Yeah, there's a, a, a bit of that. It is interesting, though, uh, there was a sweeping assertion made in this story, and it may be right, the sweeping assertion may be correct, uh, because it says, you know, journos do this, we, we all do it in our business. It says that um, the evidence quote, suggests that police are at least as likely to perpetrate domestic violence as the general population. Now, I'm not sure why that would be because it seems to me that possibly a middle-class cohort of reasonably well-educated people who are trained, you know, to some extent to do the right thing and 
uh, who understand how bad it would be for them to be charged with anything wrong. Also a cohort of people who, by definition, haven't got any criminal past. You know, they haven't got any form or they wouldn't really get into the police force. Mm. Um, that this group, rather like, say, bank tellers, probably aren't that inclined to be the sort of people who, who commit domestic violence, committed with the broad range of people, which would include, at one end of it, the sort of people who get into trouble all the time for crimes of violence. And I mean, I guess, mm. you, you, I guess you'd know from, without commenting about clients, but you'd know from your work, both as a, a police officer and a lawyer, that maybe 5% of the population end up in court, you know, 50% of the time or something like that. I, I just made that up. But, yeah, you'd see the same faces go through court over and over, would you not? Yeah, that, yeah well, that's right, Andrew. It's like a merry-go-round. That, that's right. And um, and even the magistrates and the coppers get to know the um, the same old punters, you know, who have a lot of form, lots of pages. But I think the police force now is a – is a lot in a way better. They're, you know, it's, it's quite an excellent and first-class police. I call yeah. it a service because it's not a tough police force. It's a bloody weak police force, you know, and that's another topic in itself, you know, the, the chases or they're yeah. catching all the wrong people. But, um, um, yeah, right. you know, but I think back then, uh, say yeah. 15, 20 years ago, the, the coppers were tougher, you know, and they were good crime yeah. fighters. But, um, but now – you know, everyone's a bit softer, yep. and and ev- everyone's a bit more precious. But um, and so I think it's a different culture. You know, a lot of lot more coppers now have degrees, better in um, for people, yep. but not better to to protect us in from from the real criminals. Yeah, you know, you don't you don't have the tough characters like like we used to. That's the tricky thing. <laughs> well, that's right. No, it depends where you're standing at the time. If um you know, do you want Dirty Harry to marry your daughter? No, you don't. Do you want Dirty Harry to turn up when uh, three drug-enraged crooks have done a run-through in your house and threatened to cut your throat if you don't give them the keys to your Mercedes? Well, yes, you do. You do want Dirty Harry and his brothers <laughs> all there uh, chasing the bad guys. So we all take a different view depending where we're standing at the time, don't we? That, that's so true. That's exactly right. You understand that that better than most because you've been on both sides of the fence. Sometimes I have seen police uh, criticise certain lawyers and barristers a lot, you know, very heavily because those people are, are very effective against the police in court. And yet when those same police are in trouble, you know, whether they've killed somebody or, or, or taken a lot of money that wasn't theirs or whatever, allegedly, they go and hire the same people. Have you found that? Yeah, I, I found that, Andrew. And I was saying to a colleague, the criminal justice um, game, it is a bit of a game. I've, I've known guys I work with as um, young constables, you know, and you have a few drinks with them, you get to know their good parts and their bad parts, and all of a sudden they, uh, they become barristers for 10 years and all of a sudden they're, they're judges and magistrates, you know. But um, we're just playing a, a game, you know. Once upon a time they, they, they caught the crooks and charged them and brought them to justice, then they defended them and then all of a sudden they're sitting there and they're adjudicating, so it is a game, and we wear different hats. And I think as long as we do, play the game honestly, that, yeah, that, then it works. A lot to be said for it. I, I'd I'd like to think that a, more people on the bench had that street level experience. I think it, would, it wouldn't do them any harm. 
Oh, look, it, it helps a lot, uh, Andrew. And uh, there's a, um, a certain magistrate at uh, Broadmeadows who, um, and, and other courts at Melbourne, and um, there weren't many sort of ex-members um, who uh, became magistrates, but we've got a few on the bench now, and um, and, and, and they get it. Yeah, they get it. They're, they're streetwise, and, and, you know, and they've dealt with a hardened criminal. So, so at the magistrate's court level, they, they, they know they're dealing with, with good people who've marked up, you know. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, I couldn't do any harm at all. It's a, a very good thing on your CV, really, to be a, a lawyer and or up the chain to magistrates and judges who have that uh, street experience on the beat. A wonderful thing. You've done it and you've been kind enough to share some of your memories with us today. As you intimated, there is another story to tell another day and that is about, you know, what's wrong with the police force, <laughs> why it's too soft. I think we'll leave that yes. for another occasion and um, we'll gather our thoughts and, and do it some other time. Thank you, Michael Kazilny. Andrew, it's been a great pleasure. Congratulations on all your success. All the very best. This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.